0: Welcome to the Logos Daily Podcast. At Logos Daily, we offer Logos Bible software coaching, Christian book reviews, and relevant interviews to reflect on life as a believer and to help keep us all growing. For more information about our coaching services or anything that Logos Daily has to offer, please go to our website at logos-daily.com. That's L-O-G-O-S-daily.com. Enjoy the show. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Brave Daily Podcast and author interview, author interview video series. I'm sitting down with a very special guest today, Dr. Matthew Bates. I've, I've been looking forward to this interview for several weeks. I just got finished with this book, which we're going to talk about this morning. One of the best books I've read all year. In fact, I'll go ahead and say uh, I, this was my number one book out of 2020, and I know everybody's gonna tweet that. Everybody's got their end of the year list on Twitter, and everybody's gonna tweet that as much as the Christianity Today. Uh, readers, uh, winners are retweeting all their number one awards. So th- it's just a great book. But uh, Matt Bates, he has his PhD from the University of Notre Dame. He's the Associate Professor of Theology at Quincy University. His main teaching area is the Bible and early Christian literature, he teaches courses in Western religion, church history, and Christian spirituality. He's an award-winning author. His popular and influential books include Gospel Allegiance, Salvation by Allegiance Alone, which is what we're going to talk about today. And the birth of the Trinity. Um, and uh, his current book projects on salvation and Christi- Christology are underway. He also co hosts the OnScript podcast, a Bible and theology podcast, which I listen to every episode, and you should as well. He enjoys family life, hiking, baseball, and good conversation. And you can check him out at his website, MatthewWBates.com. MatthewWBates.com. Matt, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Hey, Ryland. It's my pleasure. Do
0: you have a, a good Thanksgiving?
1: Yeah. You know, um, it's a little more low key. Yeah. Uh, This year with COVID, certainly uh, plenty of Turkey was consumed and uh, (laughs) we got out and did a little hiking too around Thanksgiving. That was good.
0: There you go. Well, every, we, we started this segment last time in our last interview. And so, uh, I've got what we call quick fire questions, five questions. You've never, you've not been shown any of these questions, but we want to get to know you a little bit, kind of the first thing that comes to uh, mind, or you can say pass if nothing comes to mind, but here we go. Uh, favorite TV show or movie?
1: Um, gosh, I'm not really a movie guy. Um, I'll, I'll go with uh, the Back to the Future trilogy for uh, uh, my favorite movie.
0: All right. Uh, what's a product you love that you'd be a spokesperson for for free?
1: Oh gosh. Uh, the AeroPress, uh, coffee brewing device, the AeroPress is amazing.
0: That's what that and
1: And I kind of have a shoe fetish, so I, okay. I, I love shoes. Uh, and, uh, I've actually gotten into jogging this last year. So I'd probably be trying to push some Hoka's on you as I Hokas. Really like my, my Hoka running shoes. Yeah.
0: Okay. Uh, well I've not even heard of Hoka's so that, that tells yeah. you, uh, yeah, but all right, they're, they're the stuff. Um, if your job didn't exist, what would you be doing?
1: I'd be an electrical engineer.
0: Okay. Which is your background, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. yeah. And this one may be hard, but what's a book or maybe a couple of books outside of the Bible you, that you think every person should read might be on faith, might not be on faith. Just this is something good for people to read.
1: Gosh. Um, I love novels. So, um, um, Leif Inger's book, Peace Like a River, um, is one that I've read this last year. Uh, phenomenal. Um, I, I also like Graham Greene. So, uh, anything you, uh, you could find by Graham Greene is usually worthwhile. Um, maybe, uh, the heart of the matter, I think is the name of, um, uh, one of, one of the ones I, I like by him. I just finished his Mon- Monsieur Quixote, uh, which was, uh, fantastic as well. So, uh, those are a couple.
0: No, that's fantastic. And then, uh, are you a meat eater? Do you eat steak? Oh, yeah. Uh, what's your favorite cut of meat?
1: Gosh, well, um, I, I would, I'll have to say the ribeye. I mean, the tenderloin or the is it's a difficult choice, but I'll go for the ribeye.
0: Okay, yeah, for me, it depends the day. Uh, and I've got a goal of my life. I want to eat every cut of steak or meat possible. Uh, is the goal. Well, today we're talking about your book, Salvation by Allegiance Alone, Rethinking Works in the Gospel of uh, Jesus the King. And as I said at the beginning, this, this really was the best thing. I've read a lot of books in 2020. This was my favorite kind of theological uh, work that I read. And in fact, I'm making it my mission uh, to read all your books in 2021. Uh, I just ordered the her- hermeneutics of the apostolic proclamation and I don't buy bound copies anymore. Uh, I'm <laughs> a big fan of Logos. I only buy digital. And so I went and uh, I've got a, a bound copy, uh, coming, but, uh, just looking forward uh, to your works. I did. Th- this book resonated with me. Um, so much, even though it came out in 2017. And I I think it's a book that everyone needs to read because because you give some nuance to a discussion that I think needs to happen within uh, the church at large, but especially evangelicalism about the nature of faith. And we kind of just assume uh, because the nature of faith is intellectual activity, or maybe even a heart issue when someone says have faith. But for those who haven't read the book, Can you tell us, you know, you talk about allegiance as salvation, but it's really a discussion of faith. When you say allegiance or faith, what do you mean by that? And then a follow-up, what do you not mean by that?
1: Okay. Um, Yeah, so uh, what I mean by that is, especially in Salvation by Allegiance alone, I, I break it into three components. I mean, we don't want to deny that there is an intellectual dimension to faith, right, that there are certain kinds of beliefs or facts that we would need to hold to be true. Um, but of course it doesn't stop there as, um, as everyone knows, even the demons believe and they shudder. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so I, th- I think we need to press beyond that. Um, so I, I, I partly do that by talking about that. We need to, um, we need to give an oath of, f- of fidelity or fealty to the King. Um, that that's p- a part of what it means to, um, to, uh, to be committed to him in faith uh, and that we need to then embody that to have a kind of an embodied dimension. So swearing loyalty to the King and actually embodying that, um, that loyalty or allegiance. So, um, one of the things that has happened is that um, faith has tended to get intellectualized um, and, or to be sort of sit in that sphere. And that's that's actually something that's happened from the time of Saint Augustine on through the, the Protestant Reformation. Most of the understandings of faith tended to start with intellectual understandings. As we've gone back um, and have sought to recover the apostolic faith. Um, those who have done really careful work on early Christianity. And here I'm talking about books like um, Teresa Morgan's book, Roman faith and Christian faith. Nije Gupta has a new book out on uh, Paul and the, and the language of faith, I think is the name of it. Um, and then um, uh, folks like P- uh, Peter Oakes uh, have done works on faith. One of the things they've noticed is these people have gone back and done really careful work on the Greek word pistis is that, um, is that it actually wasn't primarily an intellectual idea in antiquity um, that it wasn't about interiority or about what's inside a person as much as it was about external an externalized relationship. So um, the most careful studies of the pistis word group have tended to stress that it was actually something that wasn't a, introspective, but was something that was externalized through bodily relationships. Um, So it doesn't mean that it didn't have an interiority, it just means that's not what ancient people were interested in about the word. So our tendency from the time of Augustine onward to kind of privatize faith or intellectualize it, or to make it an interior thing, um, has not done sufficient justice to its externalized dimensions in the time of the apostles. So I'm trying to recover that.
0: No, that, that's so helpful. Uh, so you're saying that at the time of the apostles and the church fathers, uh, they probably didn't have everybody close your eyes, invite Jesus into your heart, say, repeat the prayer after me. So what did it mean for someone to take up faith? How, like that process of swearing allegiance to Jesus, what, do you, what did that look like?
1: Yeah, well it looked like uh, baptism primarily, uh-huh. right? As um as uh, actually the word that we we get for the sacraments sacramentum the Latin word um actually is the Latin word means oath. Um And so it's likely, uh, and this has been argued actually by uh, R. Allen Street in his book, Caesar and the Sacrament, it's very likely that earliest baptisms involved a taking of oath to Jesus as the king. Um, We actually see this in our descriptions of early baptisms, for instance, when we get to Tertullian, um when we get our earliest full kind of discussions of baptism, he he talks about um, it being involving um, an an oath, right but but even before that, I think we can see some evidence that it involved um, a calling upon the name of the Lord. Um, that this would have involved the idea of swearing loyalty to Jesus. So, of course, um, whenever we think about baptism and salvation, as the New Testament speaks about baptism and speaks about it as saving in some sense, what also speaks about faith that way? Well, how do the two interface? Mm -hmm. Well, probably they interface because baptism itself was seen as uh, in, involving a faith commitment. The problem is that we've tended to intellectualize that and been like, well, it's about trusting Jesus. That's yeah. what happened, right? And how did, how did, how did that happen, right? How, do, how does the trust interface with the baptism? If instead we see faith as being the oath of allegiance that was part of baptism, I think that we're probably moving in the right direction for putting together the
0: pieces. I, th- I think you're right. And something that came to mind is even as you talk about faith and belief and the intellectualization of faith, is I did a study a couple of years ago in John's Gospel to look at his usage of uh, belief or believes, and even that famous one in John three sixteen that whoever believes in him shall not perish, and that verse is used all the time. And when I looked at the grammar of that word, it was so int- and all the words of of belief in John's Gospel, it was so interesting that they're always in the active ongoing, and so it was never the idea of a one time event for John, but it was as you actively believe, or as you actively have faith, or as you say, allegiance in Jesus, you'll not perish, but have eternal life. And, uh, so yeah, what your message there in in your book, uh, just resonated and did you grow up in a church that did you grow up in church at all? Uh, and did they kind of take this approach to faith or where, where did you, how did you come to this?
1: Yeah, I grew up in a um, very conservative, um, non-denominational King James only church, um, which, you know, taught me scripture, deeply appreciate yep. the, the people there love the Lord. I'm not like hostile or weird about my, my, what I would, we would sure. call a very fundamentalist upbringing. Um, but um yeah, that was actually more in my junior high time. Before that, we didn't really go to church. Um, but yeah, what I was taught was, um, was would be a, a very kind of traditional Protestant way of putting um, things that you need to trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Right. And the Lord part was that that was emphasized too, mm-hmm. but but it wasn't explained well, right? Like, well, what does it mean to trust in him as Lord? Well, then, like, if you begin to probe into that, like obviously there was a nervousness about works, right? Well, like, whatever that means, it doesn't mean that you're trusting yourself. Yep. Right. Because right. like there's these works things that are really dangerous for you. Uh-huh. And um, and trying to kind of um, you know, so the, the idea that Jesus was Lord and that you need to trust him as savior and lord well, they, they didn't want to get rid of the Lord part, but they kind of did, right? Mm-hmm. I think cause, mm-hmm. um, there was tension around that. Um, so some of my work in, in Salvation by Allegiance alone um, has been, you know, uh, helping people who are part of that kind of background and tradition, uh, and even the broader church that struggles with this faith works uh, conversation uh, to come up with a better model. Like there's a, there's better ways to, to talk about the relationship between faith and works.
0: Well, and even when, as I read your book, it was so pithy that sometimes we misconstrue the idea of works of understanding what Paul means when it comes to the law versus any sort of action of obedience. And and we kind of lump everything into the basket, or some people do, we lump everything into the basket of baptism, obedience, when to me it seems in clear places that Paul, when he talks about works, it's the work of the law. Um, and so it's a different sort of, of of catalyst. The other thing that came to mind for me was this idea of we're saved by grace, but we also have this idea of allegiance. So how do, for the believer who's listening to this and you know, they might read your book and say, hey, I I do, I want to swear oath to Jesus, allegiance to Jesus. How do grace and allegiance interact with each other? Because they're not at odds. I mean, how do they go in tandem?
1: Yeah, I I actually get into this a lot more in a book that was a follow-up to Salvation by Allegiance Alone um, called Gospel Allegiance, and I have a chapter there on grace. Um, So I, I follow quite closely um, the work of a scholar, John Barclay, who um, has written this marvelous book on um, called Paul and the gift. Um, and it's really an exposition of grace as a gift and different ways in which um, the idea of grace was understood in um, both ancient times but also throughout church history. And I think Barclay shows that we've talked past one another quite a bit on grace because we all realize that grace is a gift, like connects to gift language, but there are different ways in which God might give us gifts, right? Like um, one, one way might be well, God might just gift me through the gift of nature itself. Right, like through the gift of a human body well that's something that comes from God I didn't deserve it right my very existence is a gift um, maybe God's grace involves like my, my using my natural capacities because he already anticipated and gave me a gift well, that'd be one way of constructing grace right would be to see it as as actually bound up with nature other ways would be to see it as supernatural no it's it's a dispensation that goes beyond you know um, your natural um, capacities anyway Barclay splits grace into these six different dimensions Mentions uh, the important, I think, thing for our purposes would be to recognize that um, that grace, uh, that some of the ideas around grace um, that that were present in ancient times, present in the New Testament, um, that have tended to get lopped off or shorn away our ideas of grace's effectiveness, for instance, like we tend to think about, okay, what does uh, grace mean? It means a free gift uh, that I don't deserve, that there's no strings attached. Um, Well, certainly that that emphasis is present in the New Testament, but another emphasis is present too, and that's uh, that the gift is effective, right? When God gives us grace, the grace reigns, it rules. Uh, Paul talks about this in Romans 5, right? And so that the grace then is effective for us being able to be obedient. Well, how's it effective? Well, partly through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Right, so the Holy Spirit allows us to to uh, give God back a return gift, a reciprocating gift. Um, so that would be another dimension. Like that, uh, it's clear in New Testament times that any gift um, that was given demanded reciprocation, or else you hadn't received the gift. Right? Um, you 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 if you if you didn't reciprocate by giving a return gift of acknowledgement in some way, well then you'd rejected the gift. Um, John Barclay shows that um, that in In New Testament times, it was understood that the return gift that you needed to give back was obedience, right? That God's grace is present in your life, and then you give back a return gift of obedience to him. Um, So if I was to summarize some of the problems um, that have happened, I think, especially in evangelical theology, would be around those ideas of like not seeing grace as effective, not Mm -hmm. seeing gift as demanding a return gift, Um, And so as part of that, then um, a recovery of a healthy theology is going to recognize that God has already given us a gift, right? He's given us the gospel. That's the premier historical gift he's given us. And that gospel contains a message of salvation for everyone who reciprocates by giving their allegiance to Jesus the King. And that we're empowered to live out that allegiance through the Holy Spirit because the gift of grace is effective,
0: Powerful stuff. So really grace is not, would you affirm this, that grace is not uh, our way of getting out of our responsibility? Because I hear that from time to, I'm under grace, you know, I'm not under law, I'm under grace, but really grace is not the ability to get out of our our allegiance. Grace is the empowerment by the Holy Spirit to live the kind of life that God wants us to, to be disciples of Jesus. Is that, is that what it is?
1: Yeah, that's absolutely true. I think the most dangerous thing that has happened in terms of theological systems is that grace has become completely dehistoricized, right? Like grace is just like God's abstract prior action that we don't deserve. So you can talk about grace being present in any at any time in any place because it's sort of an abstract quality that god always gives and then that's like not really connected to the historical gifts he actually did give right like that grace is the gospel grace is that he sent the holy spirit at pentecost i mean these are historical events that have implications for us that that flow from them and that are given in time so i think we have to be careful not to um, make grace purely this abstract quality of like god's favor um, but instead to see it as historically like oriented um, so that then, yeah, it empowers us to, to, to holy living.
0: I've got to rethink some things then. And I, I need yeah. to read scripture again in light of that whole whole thought of seeing God's grace as moments in, in history. Uh, I think that'd be a powerful reading to scripture. Towards the end of the book, you start to help us reframe our thinking about atonement. And I don't even know if you use the word atonement uh, but evangelicals really like the idea of imputed righteousness that angle of atonement and you do a great job describing different ways Scott McKnight says it's like golf clubs in a golf bag Paul has these different uh, different clubs and you don't always use the same club for every shot I love that analogy but when when we say that we're saved you know the idea of atonement and salvation what what does that mean by that and you know what that's such a broad thing to say, I'm saved. What does it mean to be saved?
1: Yeah, well, obviously, salvation language is just connected to rescue language, right, okay. um, is, is the idea. Um, we're in some sort of predicament, it would presume, right, and that yeah. we're, we're being rescued from that. Um, yeah, but there are different ways of conceptualizing that. Um, the one that tends to get short shrift, of course, is the idea of like, um, w- would be the idea of that we're saved um, from, um, like a lack of appropriate rule right that um like right now like um according to a full robust biblical theology we're getting bossed around if we're o- outside of christ by evil spiritual powers by um by by the devil uh by um our own our own incompetent selves right our own poor choices right as we make the i or the self the center of rule Right, um, that we end up um, we end up falling into death, and that we're ultimately then ruled by death, um, and that one really important motif, of course, is like is the Christus Victor motif of atonement. Right, that that Jesus has conquered all those things. So this is, of course, not to deny like the substitutionary atonement and forgiveness right. of sins. It's like really important too, right? Um, but um, but we want to see that like Jesus's kingship itself is good news. Right, that mm-hmm. I'm not the king anymore. Uh, nor is death, nor is the devil, nor are any of these things the king anymore, but that our self gets reconstituted in Christ and in his victory and in his resurrection, new life, power right? That then flows over into us because we're united to his death and to his resurrection and also to his ascended into his ascension. That's why it says we're seated in the heavenly realms with him, yep. right? So we want to we want to think about our union with Christ in that more full sense, in the sense of his victory over the evil spiritual powers over death itself, right? And um, if we begin to think about Christ's Kingship as the as part of the rescue itself, right um, then we can kind of move beyond just a transactional understanding of what 's happening at the cross. What happens is that the gospel gets very limited right it 's about like okay, Jesus died in my place um, well it 's actually not how scripture tends to frame it. It tends to talk about how the king the Christ right Christ died. In in our place, right? Uh, so it's that there's a communal dimension because God's creating a whole people for Himself uh, that He's ruling over that I then like fall into under the boundaries of allegiance. So if we kind of short circuit that, that's a, a lot of the problem is short circuiting. Like we want the benefit, right? We want to be under grace. We want to be at the foot of the cross, and rightly so. Um, but. But by short-circuiting to get, like, the benefit for ourselves of forgiveness, we don't really see what the Bible's up to there, seeing that, like, really the forgiveness comes through new kingship right? And that's, it, we can't separate it from new kingship. Um, so yeah, if I was to to kind of engage in conversations about uh, different models of atonement, Christus victor, I think, is a particularly important one, but, that we have historically, especially those who are part of evangelical culture in any way, have tended just not to pay a, enough attention to.
0: No, that's very fair. And some of it, I think, stems from the church is always a pendulum, of responding to something. And sometimes I still feel like we're responding to some of the, the bad things that went on during the Protestant Reformation from a Roman Catholic perspective. Um, and, you know, I would encourage everyone listening who this might be new, or you're just really sold out on, you know, this propitiation, the imputed righteousness, to go back and read 1 Corinthians 15 and the sermons and acts, and to see how those guys handled the gospel. And if they preached the gospel, because they didn't spend a lot of time talking about the forgiveness of sins they spend a lot of time talking about and in your book you list them like the seven or eight uh, things about the gospel but Jesus was preexistent they worked through his ministry and as first Paul concludes in 1 Corinthians 15, all things end in God all, all, all things become all and uh, it's just a yeah the Christus Victor stuff and and I want everyone to notice he you didn't deny uh, imputation and you're just saying that there's more ways to look at it, right?
1: yeah Yeah. the whole conversation around imputed righteousness is complex um and i I get into that a little bit more that language of imputation actually um logizomai in greek um actually is not used to talk about how righteousness is imputed to us right um it's not credited to us in that kind of way um actually the language of logizomai has to do with faith being credited um so there's some slipperiness with all that um that we need to be very careful with um i Without denying that like, imputed righteousness is getting like something approximately like the biblical truth, uh, I just don't think it's probably the best language at the end of the day. I favor um, language of in the Christ righteousness rather than imputed righteousness. I think that, that actually gets closer to um, what the Bible itself emphasizes.
0: Good things to think about. I've got a friend who's a student at Wheaton, and his family goes to the church I preach at. I'm going to say hello to Eli Driscoll. uh, His dad actually sent me one of his papers that he wrote for one of his classes that he quoted you in. And so I read the paper a couple months ago, and uh, then I sent him a text a couple weeks ago asking if he had any questions, uh, if he was in in my shoes. And he said he checked with his classmates. So two of these questions are from him and his classmates. Uh, But the first one is this. When thinking about the relationship between church and state, are we able to say the Pledge of Allegiance with a good conscience as a Christian when our allegiance is to Christ?
1: Well, I think that's very contextually dependent. Um, I I, I myself, in my own practices of saying the Pledge of Allegiance, would be very careful to not um, want that to be misinterpreted. Yeah. Right. Um, I think if it's like a general, like, you know, if you're in a stadium and everyone's saying the Pledge of Allegiance, I, I would tend to not um, just because I don't think that um, it's, 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 it's unclear whether that's a nationalistic allegiance that like, could override my allegiance to Christ or not. If it was in the context where I was with people who knew my primary allegiance was to Christ and I felt comfortable with that, um, I wouldn't be hesitant to say the pledge as a secondary kind of allegiance. I do think that um, there is um, ample space in Scripture for seeing nested allegiances, right? That um, obviously our first allegiance is to Jesus as the king. Underneath that, there are other appropriate allegiances, right? It's a totally appropriate for me to be allegiant to my wife, right? I, I, sh- I better be loyal to her, right? It's, imp- it's appropriate for me to be allegiant to my boss uh, to a degree that's appropriate within the bounds of my higher allegiance to Jesus. So it's, I think it's, it's perfectly fine to be allegiant to our nation, right? We have common goals as a nation um, that, um, that can further the public good. And I think it's naive to think that God um, would not want us to work together for the common good within the balance of nation states as they're given today. Right? But we also have to be careful because nationalistic interests sometimes fly in the face of the interests of Jesus. More often than we would like to admit, probably. So I'm I'm very careful about about allegiance commitments, um, partly because I think they're so easily misconstrued, and also the states um, can flip flop, right? Right now, I might be happy with um, the direction the country is going, and then a, a year from now, they may do something egregiously anti-Christian, right? Um, well, how does my pledging of, of loyalty connect to to, to that? Um, the possible flip-flopping, right, of, of what the, the nation may or may not do. That's complicated, too.
0: Mm-hmm. His second question is, if we claim our faith as allegiance, it put, could be tempting to fall into a state of fideism. How do we best balance an allegiance to Christ but also live in faith, seeking understanding rather than a blind acceptance?
1: Yeah, um, I, I guess I see the concern. <coughs> Excuse me. I guess I see the concern, um, because, um, yeah, if we have a strongly intellectualized idea about faith, right? Like, well then we might be like, well, I always got to pursue more knowledge. Right. Um, and, um, and so that then like my faith is being constantly renewed by like continuing to enhance my belief system or something like that. Um, and that if I accept allegiance, well then I might not like, be as interested in the intellectual quest anymore because it's not that important. The important thing is my allegiance to Jesus. Um, so, so how do we avoid that? Um, well, I think on the one hand, um, maybe the intellectual quest, um, as we kind of continue to seek out like deeper and deeper understandings, I, I think that it, it actually can sometimes have the opposite effect for people. It can, um, they can move into seasons of deep doubt and deep, uh, deep concern. Right where they um, they don't know whether or not um, they're Christians anymore. They don't know whether the Christian story is even true. Or um, we go through seasons of wrestling like that. I think allegiance is actually helpful during those times because it helps us to see that, like, actually, um, if I have an overall posture of loyalty to Jesus, right? If I'm trying to embody my loyalty to the King, even if my mind isn't following suit, right? Even if like. Even if I have these intellectual questions that I'm wrestling with, like if my body is giving loyalty to the king or at least seeking to, not not perfectly, imperfectly doing it, right? Well, then I know I'm still on the right path. That can be helpful to us, I think, pastorally, um, even as as a part of self-care, right? To realize like, okay, doubt is part of the normal Christian experience. Um, My allegiance is what connects me to the king, um, which is something that's relational and externalized and not just about my mind. Um, so I think it can help in that way. Um, but I also think the Holy Spirit, just we could trust the Holy Spirit's going to continue to draw us onward, right, in our intellectual quest, that a posture of loyalty to the King isn't one that's going to, the, the Spirit wouldn't allow us to rest in just a, um, a complacent um, laziness about our intellectual life. Um, but I think that the Spirit is concerned with us as holistic um, people and will continue to move us to an appropriate degree for our life station, for our um, current life experiences or the needs of his kingdom um, to uh, continue to intellectually pursue him at appropriate times. There may be times when that's a handicap to our service, right? And maybe it is good for seasons to not be, to not be on an intellectual quest, but to instead be getting our boots on the ground because we're busy doing things for the Lord. That's okay too. I think mm-hmm. we can trust the spirit to lead us.
0: Uh, what, what a great word for us to, uh, kind of transition from, and we 're going to put all the links to your books uh, on the description wherever you 're listening or watching want to encourage you uh, to buy one and read it and and on your podcast, the on script podcast i 'm not an academic i don 't even pretend to be an academic. I love listening to it though because it lets me listen to people that I normally wouldn 't have access to you know as a preacher there 's conferences designed for kind of preachers and pastors and church health, and they're great, but I love this, like I listened to an episode a couple weeks ago about Black Samson, and got to hear the, uh, kind of the, the narrative of that work. I would have had no idea about that, and so I don't, I'll be the first to say, I don't always understand everything, and that's okay, but it gives me things to think about Uh, And perspectives that I would not have considered. You've got a great segment on your podcast where someone throws out a title from Amazon, and the guest has to review it. I'm going to steal that uh, this morning, and I've got two books that I want to review from. And you've not heard the title of these. The first is uh, "I Want My MTV: The Uncensored Story of the Music Video Revolution."
1: Okay, so uh, so what? How am I supposed to respond? Am I? I'm not following.
0: Uh, Like on a scale of one to five. Uh, I, I heard this on your podcast, and may, maybe I missed it, but uh, they uh, someone threw out a title, the host threw out a title, and the person had to review that book.
1: Oh, oh just to, to give it a five or a yeah, one star. Yeah, like one to gotcha. five. Gotcha. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I didn't host that episode, so okay. I, I was, I'm not. Uh, that must be one of Drew's or Matt's techniques yes. there, or maybe uh, yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, so I want my MTV. Um, yes. uh, I'm going to give that a one star. I'm I'm not. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that's going to edify anybody.
0: I don't, I don't either. I don't either. Um, and then the other one, I I bet I'm going to guess you on this one too. Uh, but the rock, the lens through his lens, his life, his movies, his world, the Dwayne, the rock Johnson biography.
1: Oh, um, I don't know. I mean, that guy at least works out. I'll give him a two star.
0: All right. A two star. Well, now that's kind of silly, but who are you reading right now? Uh, that people might be able to say, you know, people always want to know who's reading what?
1: Well, um, I do some of my academic reading obviously does connect to the podcast on script um, that I do. So right now I'm um, reading, rereading Alistair McGrath's Eustitia Dei, which is um, a considered the definitive historical um, treatment of the topic of the righteousness of God. It traces the understanding of how the righteousness of God, that phrase was understood all the way from Old Testament times uh, up through contemporary research. Uh, with a really strong focus on the Protestant Reformation and the catholic counter reformation um, so he actually this is in his fourth edition now and i 've read i 've read the book several times in its earlier incarnations uh, but i 'm going to be interviewing him on his new fourth edition, which is actually quite a um, quite a change from his third edition. There's lots of new stuff. So um, that'll be a fun interview um, with Alistair McGrath. So thinking a lot about the righteousness of God uh, and the topic of imputed righteousness uh, mm-hmm. that uh, is connected to all that. Um, I'm also uh, at least just have started um, uh, Matthew Teason's book, um, uh, Jesus and the, uh, it's called Jesus and the forces of death, I believe is the name of it. Um, and uh, that uh, we're preparing to interview him as well. Uh, and that's all, a lot of it is about um how Jesus interacted with uh, both purity, uh, kosher concerns, and, and things like that, and uh, argues that, um, yeah, that Jesus was law observant and that he was primarily interested in um, fighting against the forces of death. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting book and has caused a lot of conversation, I think uh, already in our field. So it's, it's worth, worth reading. Um, yeah. Beyond that, um, I'm actually reading a Ray Bradbury novel uh, right now. Um, I don't know if, if any of you are Ray Bradbury fans, but earlier this year I read his Dandelion Wine, which is a beautiful, uh, beautiful reflection on uh, growing up in the like, 1920s or something like that. He has a sequel to that called Farewell Summer that I just started.
0: Okay, well, that's fantastic. So, if you want to, uh, someone wants to b- get those books, check them out. Uh, that would be a good thing. I'm always interested to see what people are reading. Matt, thank you so much uh, for sitting down with me today. Was, for sitting down with me today. It's been an absolute joy uh, to talk to you.
1: Hey, Ryland. Hey, it's been wonderful. I appreciate the conversation.
0: My pleasure. And for everyone at Brave Daily, if you need help with Logos uh, Bible software coaching, I encourage you to go to our website, bravedaily.com. Sign up with a coach if you need help with notes, resources, library management, sermon prep, whatever it is, uh, we've got a coach that's going to work for you. And we're around the world. We've got coaches around the world. So uh, wherever you're, whatever time zone you're listening to, we'll have someone available uh, to help you out with, uh, with Logos Bible software. Until next time, uh, I'm Ryland Brown. God bless.